Welcome, tabletop fans, to the inaugural episode of Tales and Tactics. I'm uh, one of your hosts, Max, and today we will be exploring the origins, system, and impact of the medieval miniatures game Chainmail. With me is my friend and co-host, Troy. Hey, good to meet you. Wherever you are. Wherever you are. Uh, I've already met Max, obviously. <laughs> obviously. And our producer, Jay. Hey, how you doing? Uh, stick around and we'll go through this rule set that laid the groundwork for fantasy gaming as we know it. Okay, so Chainmail is a medieval miniature skirmish game that gives you the opportunity to fight battles of a few different sizes with your collection of, at the time, lead metal figures. This is mm -hmm. a really interesting game. It came in and changed uh, the history of miniature wargaming. And in our episode, we're going to make sure we give the background of this game, where it came from, the creators, Jeff Perrin and Gary Gygax, the community they were a part of. We'll get into the system, as well as some of the elements and mechanics that made up this game. And we'll make sure to also cover its impact and some of what followed on from it before we give you a quick summary of uh, Chainmail and what we thought of it. Yeah, and uh, once we get through our our sections we'll go to the end and kind of set up what we might be doing coming forward from here perfect so uh at this point i think we'll just go straight into the origins of chainmail and it's uh it's illustrious background of wargaming so chainmail was born out of a long tradition of miniature wargaming which is as most of us understand it to be small figurines um, usually made out of lead or pewter, and then later out of plastic, uh, that are put onto a table of terrain, and then have certain rules about movement and engagement. Uh, and this goes back as far as uh, the game Kriegspiel from the 1820s, and then to more popularized earlier, uh, or a more earlier version of that, which is H.G. Wells, the science fiction author, uh, made a game called Little Wars, which popularized the game in the, I guess, in the mind of the public. And that was in 1913. Uh, but then racing ahead, we end up coming to uh, Lake Geneva, Wisconsin in the late 60s. And the bringing together of uh, Jeff Perrin, who was a, I guess, a medieval weapons enthusiast who is obviously connected to the uh wargaming scene through things like uh jack scrooby's medieval warfare which was a, a growing part of that part of the hobby though it's interesting to say that because um medieval warfare as a genre within wargaming was not yet as popular as say napoleonics or in america civil war gaming and digressions aside he meets up with gary gygax and they both kind of collaborate on this game which they end up calling chainmail uh they were both members of the international federation of war gamers and so they were connected in through a lot of the same magazine you know the 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 hobby magazines that connected those and uh they decided that they discovered there was a niche here that could be filled and 
uh, they decided to go ahead and, and make a product. So the combination of these two men's experience, Gygax's in this case being the experience of running war games, uh, especially at the Lake Geneva War Games Convention, which of course would later become Gen Con. Uh, the first edition of Chainmails was published in 1971 and took a lot of influences from Tony Bath's Warfare uh, War Games. So I think it's important to to lay down and maybe, uh, Troy, you can kind of flesh out that ostensibly wargaming of the pre-70s is a very British thing. That's right. Especially coming from H.G. Wells' Little Wars, it existed within the imagination of a section of British gamers. Uh, it was predominantly practiced by them outside of the communities that still played the more directly, I guess we'll call them militarized games like Kriegspiel, but Little Wars appealed to a different community, to people who were practicing the concept of um imaginations with a hyphen in the middle you know where they would create these fictional enlightenment era countries and have them contest against each other and write these elaborate stories so there was a lot of that that was occurring in britain and it wasn't uh until we saw the rise of games like chainmail in america that there was sort of a crossover and that influence from chainmail came back to Britain, and uh, we'll discuss that later, but that definitely influenced products and games that were to come, you know, down the line from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think notable above about the the scene that was happening in wargaming. So from what I was reading about the within the American wargaming scene, predominantly um, most people in the 60s were playing games by uh, companies like SPI and Avalon Hill. And those games are uh, more abstract representations of warfare. Usually, I think you could call them more like a military board game. Yep, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of a few examples of that. Um, there were games that covered the Civil War, games that covered the Ancients period, uh, and of course, Napoleonics, um, again, because these are American companies, you had a lot of uh, stuff, you know, specific to their own history. But at the very same time, uh, you could go to Rome, you could go to Greece, there were all types of periods covered. And that's kind of uh, part of the, the Hex Encounter era, you know, where that was the predominant wargaming medium, where over time that perhaps changed. Yeah, uh, there's a popular Civil War game. I'm trying to remember. I think it's Gettysburg. Oh, okay. I think that's, I think that's one of those kinds of games that I think that might be an Avalon Hill product. Right. Okay. So yeah, those sorts of games were probably the most popular. Mm-hmm. Probably because the accessibility to them, they all came in a box. They had rules. They were complicated, and and some of them were intensely mathematically focused with lots of tables and, and different kinds of deductions. Some of them not using dice. I think some of them using dice. That's right. But, yeah. but there's, a, there's a, uh, a far more abstracted idea. And then this is sort of, I guess this is the popular American form of the game that was going on. And then a subset of that was drawing influence from the British war game, which 
use these sort of sculpted figures. Mm-hmm. Um, and from what I understand, the the high level American war gamers kind of look down on their uh, their abstract playing counterparts or their their model playing counterparts and kind of saw them as grown men playing with toys. <laughs> I understand. Um, yeah, and uh, so within that little subculture gary and jeff were doing their thing and then they also had this notion that they were interested in fantasy elements which come up in chainmail which we'll get into when we talk about the the system itself but so they were also a subset within that group that likely wasn't respected as much probably because of the lack of respect that the group was getting from the the broader community it's like, well, we gotta, we gotta be sensible. We gotta play with our, uh, we're gonna play with little men, but we're gonna play with Napoleonic men. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, <laughs> you could take us serious because it's real life. And then you have the guys playing with little metal dragons, and it's like, oh, we don't talk about them. <laughs> yeah, and likely in a lot of cases, those are like hand sculpted. Oh yeah, these are or like by the hobbyists themselves. You know what I mean? Or re- yeah, reappropriated from like other model packs. I know that. Um, at the same time, Lord of the Rings was quite popular, and so some model companies, miniature companies, were the few that existed, were going out on a limb based on the popularity of other ones and producing fantasy figures. Oh, okay. Uh, I've, seen, I've seen some photos of like hobbits. Um, I think of some dragons as well, but you know, some very the, the, strange looking Balrogs. The the Tolkien yeah exactly the Tolkien craze would be would be creeping up at this point even though Lord of the Rings was published back in the 30s it it was a sleeper hit and by the late 60s early 70s was turning into a full on craze and that must have touched on uh this group of people probably more with um. Uh, Dave Arneson, mm-hmm. but we won't get to him until Dungeons and Dragons becomes a thing. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It completely revolutionized wargaming. It brought in fantasy elements, and just as you indicated, it inspired the creation of Dungeons and Dragons itself. And it was also a very granular approach to all of these things in a really new and unique way. And I think um, if you're ready, we can move right into the systems that defined this game. Yeah, let's get into the guts of it. What's interesting is there were multiple ways to play. There were different choices you as the gamer could make, you know, as a group or as an individual as to how you wanted to play the game. So you could play in the base capacity where you're looking at a model to man count. So this is what this is indicating is each model that you have on your table, you're at the time, lead figurine, is not just a single individual representation. It actually represents 20 unique fighting men. So mm-hmm. that's the base way this game is actually played. You'd rank your 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 models in, you know, five by two um, or, you know, four by three or different formation sizes, depending on what they were in these smaller groups. And then you would effectively maneuver shoot and fight and it used 
a structure that we're going to see a lot of other war games take on, but it still had these hallmarks of its era and of the games that had come before it. And what I mean by that is, in particular, the way you can choose to move. So there's two movement systems. There's move and counter move, and then there's written orders simultaneous movement. So mm. move and counter move, what's significant about that is you roll initiative. So if you think about playing a war game today, I would say at least half of them are going to have you roll initiative at the start of your battle or the start of your turn. And that is something that's, you know, directly from this chain mail. Um, it could have been before as well, but this is such a strong example of that initiative mechanic showing up. And whoever wins initiative then decides if they're going to move or counter move, be the first or the second player. And once they've made that de uh, declaration, the phase begins and then movement is off and away. And that's a way that two players can play each other without needing the umpire that's required of written orders and simultaneous movement, where you will actually specify for your units the specific intention in a written capacity of you know they're marching to up to this tree line in column formation you know what i mean so it's something that is really cool very immersive and gives you a really fascinating kind of like written log of the battle if you want a cool history of your fight but at the same time it takes a third party to interpret these mechanics it's a lot slower as you have to interpret them and push the models around kind of in this this new rhythm as you're trying to replicate a simultaneous progression. So mm. it, it had a very different take, but that was a choice you could make as the player, whether or not you were interested in playing in almost the nouveau way, the move counter move, or if the traditional written orders. And that shows up again when you can choose if you're going to play with your one to 20 figure ratio, or if you're going to play man to man combat. And that changes the combat mechanics of the game itself. But what it does is it actually has your troops count as just the specific individual they are. And that's important for skirmishes, raids, um, fights around the baggage train, as well as sieges. Uh, like fighting on ramparts or in keeps, right? So you would want to use that man-to-man -man combat ratio for that. So it still is chainmail. It's still using effectively the same movement and combat resolution systems, but it's just changed your lens of focus to be down to the individual. So it plays a little differently. Mm -hmm. And yeah, then there is, uh, oh, pardon me, go ahead. Yeah, um, it's interesting with the the historical idea of the the move counter move and the simultaneous move because uh as you were mentioned as you mentioned um the move counter move kind of came out as a modern thing to eliminate the umpire which umpire and dice had both been introduced with kriegspiel um but i guess yeah there's this want to have a, a game that doesn't require i don't know if i could say the subjectiveness of having an umpire but mm -hmm. there's an there's an element in there that's like um wanting to be able to kind of play it out rather than delegating written orders which again is an interesting way to do it but it's 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 a lot more stilted it is yeah it slows things down the worst part about written orders in my opinion is the downtime that both players have while the umpire or game master processes the written orders and figures out 
how it's all going to happen. And then they sort of make the demonstration to the players, you know, whether they then move the models or they then show them the outcomes or it depends on the game you're playing. But that to me is the big barrier to written orders wherein you lose anything you gain. But the way that Chainmail came in and introduced this innovative counter move system gives you this initiative. So there's the tension at the start of the game turn where you don't know who's going to secure the first move. It, it worked really well in games today by a lot of designers and by a lot of studios are still played that very same way. You know, games I play um, still have that exact mechanic in place. So it just goes to show the type of influence uh, this game has. And um when we were saying there were the larger combat rules, I wouldn't go so far as to call them mass combat, but like, you know, the larger scale where the models are multiple figures or pardon me, a representation of multiples. Uh, then you have the man to man. You also have a jousting system, which allows mm -hmm. you to pick how you're going to strike in the saddle and how you're going to sit in the saddle as you move. So it gives this system and this, this dynamism of like you're a knight and you're specifically positioning yourself and you do three bouts or until the first unhorsing and it's it's really interesting and there's not a ton of jousting games out there so it's really cool to get this like zoomed in super intimate miniature game that you don't even need models for i don't even see the point of using models for the game where you're only ever going to move them eight inches in a straight line and then turn them around right. and move them another eight inches yeah but it's really cool and um then as we alluded to earlier there is a siege mechanic uh for this game as well for fighting out battles within a castle or assaulting a fortification and that again just gets more detailed gives you more interest and just goes to show the breadth of this game and trying to capture medieval combat in a way that previously it had not captured the imagination the same uh and then we have the whole fantasy element of this game mm -hmm. so there were heroes wizards there's magical powers magical items and then there is a wide variety of your classic fantasy archetypes so you're going to have hobbits dwarves elves goblins orcs uh, they'll bring with them different modifications but they're effectively based on the existing troop classes that are already in the game so it's not a complete departure from chainmail it's just uh, a flavoring of it to capture definitely that that era of fantasy that tolkien that moorcock you know mm. some of those themes and vibes um specifically like they specifically call out um lord of the rings and elric of melbourne um, mel nibbene yeah yes thank you um yeah and i think there's some mention of um howard yeah oh and conan or at least there's this is a suggestion of Conan, or they may actually flat out say it. They do. Um, yeah, under they do. The, the reference for superhero, they yeah. just say, by the way, if you wanted Conan, this is the stat. So it's, it's really great. And there's magical spells. There's rules for magic items. And in many ways, this was the first opportunity to do the same type of fantasy gaming um, that you might have seen at the Battle of Pelennor Fields, you know, in the Lord of the Rings. Like this mm. was a game that was able to provide those notes in a very exciting way. 
And all the archetypes are there. If you wanted to do the Rohirrim or the Gondorians or the Mordor Oryx, it's all in there. So it's, it's very achievable. Yeah. Um, some interesting points around the game that maybe you can kind of enlighten and maybe provide some of your own opinion to are the morale and fatigue systems. Yeah. So I love the morale and the fatigue systems in their intent and in the theory behind them, just not so much their execution, Mm. but what's really important about them is they are what make this a war game, not a glorified RPG skirmish engine. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, because there's this concept and this presence of friction. So when you go in to fight, uh, let's say a cavalry unit is charging a unit of, of heavy foot. There's a morale check that's required to sustain position and hold to receive the charge of the heavy foot or the heavy foot to receive the charge of the cavalry, I should say. Once they receive the cavalry, we fight our round of combat. We determine our outcome of number of casualties taken. Then you do this equation, and I, I use the term equation deliberately <laughs> because it is definitely a little bit of calculating. But once you've determined the difference in combat loss as a, as a number between 1 to 100, it then tells you the type of result that the winner or loser will face. So let's say the cavalry win and the outcome is such that the heavy foot will now retreat. They will then suffer the morale uh, result. They'll perform their retreat. And then if they didn't route, they don't have to rally, but they may finish facing towards the enemy that just made them break. Um, but the interesting thing about this game is you don't lose your charge movement once you make contact. Mm. So this cavalry unit that charged, is say it still has six inches remaining in its charge, if you were um, prescient enough to note that, you can finish that charge movement. And if you make that contact again with that unit, you're into another round of melee. And this time, we're going to talk about the fatigue mechanic, as that is something that's going to apply once your troops have experienced combat, once they've charged, once they've moved consecutive turns. So this whole mechanic starts to penalize your troops the harder you push them. And it is something that has kind of an unfortunately tricky way to track. You know, it's it's not supernatural with a token to track like, oh, these guys moved three turns consecutively, so they're suffering fatigue now. You know, it's a little harder to interpret that without just having a clean perspective on what's happening on the battlefield or taking really good notes. Mm. But but it does allow for really cool opportunities and depth for you to rec- like if you want to get the cavalry flank maneuver off, you may do it, but you may blow out your horses when you do so by tiring them. Mm. And I just love that opportunity for more, more of the term that I think is so important, that Clausewitzian friction, where you don't have absolute control. There's stuff outside of your influence, and you have to contend with that. And the strategy and tactics comes from your ability to deal with that not just have perfect control over your assets. Yeah. I mean, I I think that's an interesting innovation. I'm sure it must have existed in some form before this, but the idea of not having full control over the units um, in the sense that they panic, they screw up, they they get stressed out and things happen um, is... At least in the way that it's expressed here is is innovative. It definitely finds its way into other 
games that are descended from this. I know that, like, say, morale checks in AD&D are a thing. Yeah, that's a perfect example of the morale checks you do in um, the earlier editions of Dungeons and Dragons and in many OSR games that still have them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, cl- it's, I mean, it is a defining mechanic of many war games is how do they tackle morale? How do they handle that? And the more, and you know, the infamous morale check, some games boil it down to a single moment of dice outcome. And that's the morale check. Other games have like a degrading morale health system that you're tracking and accruing these damage points. There's so many different ways to interpret it, but it's, I think Chainmail came in and did it in a way that was really satisfying, maybe a little clunky, but it produces these extremely cool outcomes where like heroic units can desert on you, mm-hmm. you know, peasant levy can break and be run down by cavalry, or they could show a spine and actually repulse the charge if you just roll that right way. So it's got a lot of potential depth. And one of the things that I really look for in a war game is not being able to read it and understand every outcome is to read it and have this the sense of the possibility being greater than what you could just simply imagine mm. do you know what i mean to say like yeah, there's, yeah there's there's this possibility space that is like unknown because only the dice could tell you and i feel like that does kind of apply to chainmail because you can have these outcomes and these really intricate clashes and i think that's somewhere somewhat where that granularity comes in because you're going to have different terrain rules you're going to have morale rules fatigue rules we've talked about the differences between man to man the more quote mass combat as well as the different movement mechanics so with all that there you've sort of created this mixture where you can't just sit back and say the the Normans will charge in and they'll and they'll whoop the Saxons and that's the game. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you you can't just say that. And I think that's what, what Chainmail really sets up and does fantastically as a war game. And when it added in the fantasy component, it really kind of blew the lid off. Yeah. And I think I think that's kind of a cool segue to um to the impact of this game and kind of what it did. Yeah, well the the fantasy elements for sure um very much laid the groundwork for things obvious the most obvious of these is dungeons and dragons and um dave arneson's blackmore campaign right so i'm not exactly sure the the precise connection of events and i think through some of the the stuff i had read some of that is lost to time but um arneson was using effectively the 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 rules from chainmail to then play a game obviously enjoyed the game as it was in some respect but quickly found that you could actually probably through the man to man again there's so many seeds in chainmail mm-hmm. so obviously it has what i would consider the the standard way of thinking about wargaming which is the mass combat what we could call mass combat yep i i think that that's not i agree with you in that that it's not entirely accurate maybe a better way to say it's more of like a traditional war game yeah yeah that uses that that themes itself in a medieval fashion and then the man-to-man combat is i think that's probably one of the like the fantasy aspect is is a huge other element but one of the main things is the idea that 
oh, we're just looking at two people fighting and we have a separate set of rules. And like no Napoleonics game, no Civil War game. I don't even think an ancient history game. I mean, I think there's a potential for that. But like we tend to think of the player as being the general. Yes. Or and all of this sort of being an extrapolated version of the battle that's happening. And the idea to zoom in on two particular characters that are having a dramatic fight, and even to include rules for Conan-style characters in the fantasy aspect, because uh, I think they're referred to as superheroes. That's right, yeah. Yeah. So mechanically, they are several men stacked upon each other for lack of a better term they are they are the worth of many men in the battlefield and so when they hit they hit equivalently to that and i think they can be there are ways to play them in mass combat which is essentially what i just described but then in a man-to-man section i mean maybe you could explain the man-to-man rules in a bit in a bit more detail how it works is the weapons are rated in different classes And depending on your class of weapon, we'll sort of interpret its speed and maneuverability. It's almost its handling. So Mm. something like a lighter blade would be a lower number, while a heavier polearm would be a higher number. And once you um, reach a certain difference between the numbers, if you've got, for example, double or tripled by a higher number, that's how many additional strikes you can make with a lighter weapon. Mm. But the person with the heavier weapon is going to make the first strike. And if you're able to survive that, you can then make your follow-up strike. And depending on where you're confronting your opponent from, what from the rear, from the flank, it's going to modify who goes first and who has advantage. So it, it is really quite intricate, and it does have... Um, sort of an exchange of blows sort of in nature. It's not like I run in and take a swing and you just take it. Mm -hmm. And then maybe on your turn, you punch me back. (laughs) It's no, in this capacity, like I hit you. And then if you survive it, you're directly countering me. So it has this, this feel of a duel of a fight. And I think that really captures that man to man skirmish element. And if you look at the wargaming market today, it's skirmish games. Like that's what people play for the most part. There are still big battle games, but they're played, you know, because of the tradition of them Mm. almost less than that. People are seeking them out as new players, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So it's really cool that this game, like, helped lay that groundwork and the man-to-man combat is really interesting the jousting is very similar in that way in that it's also another man-to-man where you're sort of assigning your strikes and you're sitting you're changing your position in the saddle you know how you declare that yeah yeah so it's it's again in that capacity but you're right it, it definitely was setting up the more intimate perspective that we would go into with like dungeons and dragons mm-hmm. and the way that you would be controlling instead of like a whole army you know, in the traditional scale, or instead of like a, a raiding party or a war band, you're all the way down to like a, a, a crew. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it suggests the next logical step, which is what if we just all played one of those guys? Exactly. And there you get one of the really interesting breakthroughs because one of the things that's challenging about a war game is when you have 30 people and you're trying to think about who is your POV within the 30 characters of your warband, you're invariably going to pick the leader 
because it gives you the most flexibility in command decisions yep. and ver and like effectively verb choices as the player. But it cuts out a lot of viewpoints, a lot of perspectives that you could otherwise see. So it's really cool the way that the RPG came in and made every character playable, every perspective meaningful. It's not just like the captain or the general that you get to play as. And I think that was was a bit of a revolution in itself. And also the way that fantasy elements kind of liberated people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not yeah, no, in it, that, it was it, definitely a game changer. Like not in that the historical gaming is bad or, or has like these, these buckled down limits because history is wild and there's so much open ground there. But I would say that it gave players this opportunity to think about what they could be and what they could experiment with in this crazy new way. And I think that's just so exciting. And you can definitely see that it captured the imagination of like, well, generations of gamers. Yeah. I mean, once the the lid came off on that idea, like, I think that's the, the whole thing that we're trying to narrow in on this episode, which is like, why is this game actually important? And it's because you you a whole bunch of things just start springing out of the the idea of not only playing, bringing the the, the combat level down to the individual, but also the idea of bringing in the fantasy element. So obviously Dungeons and Dragons, but also um, Warhammer fantasy battles. Yep. So a war game that has a more refined fantasy aspect. So now, now we're not just talking about, oh, we'll throw a few orcs and kind of figure that out. No, like I have a whole faction of like, you know, orcs or Skaven or elves, or, and they have their own unique traits and units that are against all these other, you know, groups. That isn't present here, but you can absolutely make that logical jump. Yeah, absolutely you can. You can see where this is going once you... If you know anything about where fantasy gaming went, and then you go back and look at this, you can easily see the projection that's going to happen. And I think that's what's so exciting about Chainmail. I mean, what's almost you know, too bad is that <laughs> Chainmail isn't the one that we think about. We always think about D&D. You know, it like Chainmail was more that prototype for what would later become the real breakout. Yeah. But it's so cool that what it achieved, it did. Um, how it changed gaming was wild. It opened the door to so many new people getting to enjoy the hobby, which is a big deal. And I think for me, it still manages to be a crunchy, wicked war game with morale and fatigue and complicated terrain rules while also opening the door to representing so much more yeah no absolutely um yeah and as i said like like our next episode we're aiming to talk about original dungeons and dragons which is the next step right off of this exactly and i suppose we'll be able to bridge in things like blackmore and potentially some of the other elements that trail from from this into the next one but it opened up so much as far as what we consider, what we kind of take for granted now. And I think a lot of it gets left behind. But like when you look at those early editions of D&D, they still have that wargaming aura around them. They still have the, those elements. Even the idea of like how turn sequences work, that's, that's something that's predominant in this. Um, and how 
like the, the idea that morale checks are still present. The uh, the concept of levels is an obvious takeoff from the idea of different power levels of an individual. So the 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 infantry, the hero, the superhero, yeah, going up from there. Uh, it's very easy to just numerate that and then say, oh, I'm a this level that. Yeah, exactly. You can see the form of it in 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 chainmail. You certainly can, and I think part of what makes this so exciting is it enabled the rise of these new narratives, quests, characters, new games, further miniatures. It birthed this complete like fantasy renaissance of gaming that I think without, we never would have gotten to where we are today. You know, it could have been another game that eventually did it, but it happening here is just so important. It's such a clutch time, and it's really cool to see the games we now play that they're so dependent on this original title, this inception point. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, as you already let off, the next episode is going to be covering OD&D, the original game. And we're going to go into the game's origin, systems, its impact, what it was like to make a character, what it was like to be the game master or the dungeon master for that experience. And we'll lay that out in you know, a similar fashion as to today, but we want to make sure that we give that game um, its own approach because of just how important it is to uh, the foundation of all of this. So I think we'll probably call it there for this session. Uh, so you've been listening to Tales and Tactics with Max, Troy, and Jay, and we'll catch you next time.